You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mike McBeardo McBadden, I am so excited to talk to you again. Awesome. I'm excited to talk to you. It has been years since we've talked. We talked when, it, what were we doing? Black Roses? Talking about heavy metal movies? <laughs> That's right. So that was five years ago. Holy shit. And now we're talking about teen movie hell, a crucible of coming of age comedies from Animal House to Zapped. So why'd you say, okay, I'm going to go from heavy metal movies to teen movies? Is that the next natural step? It's actually in reverse order in terms of my natural interests. Um, I had been wanting to write a book about teen sex comedies, specifically of the 70s and 80s, um, since 1994. I was fascinated by these films above all others because Fast Times at Richmond High opened the very first Friday of my freshman year of high school. Ferris Bueller opened the exact day after I graduated four years later, 1986. As I went through my actual high school experience, these were the movies that were available about high school experiences, and they spoke directly to me. They have fascinated me. They were made for me. As I say in the book, they were, uh, you know, I think of them as porno movies watered down for 13-year-olds, and this was right up my prurient alley at the time. And I'm uh, I'm in a movie obsessive. I'm a trash culture obsessive. And, uh, you know, this was movies and trash culture coming together in a very personal way for me. So I wanted to do this book. I'm a tremendous fan of movie compendiums. Those are the building blocks of my life as a writer and a reader. And that's it. So I was hoping to do this originally in 1999. It almost came out and it didn't. And then uh, it went away for a while and heavy metal movies happened. And then that w- that did well enough that I was able to go back to this. So how much of this book was written back in 1999? I wrote the entire book, but it's an, it's, it's an entirely different book in the 1999 version. That was called I Lost It in the, Ro- in the Locker Room, little nod to Pauline Kale. Um, it, it was almost published by St. Martin's Press, and right before, it was like, like 11th hour as we were going to get ready to sign things, they closed the division of the company that was going to put it out, and they laid off my editor. <laughs> That book was extremely obnoxious. It was in keeping with the uh, writer writer's voice I had developed throughout the 90s, which was a character, Selwyn Harris. Uh, I published a zine called Happy Land, which was an attempt to make like the most offensive possible zine of all time. So that was, that was of that ilk um, that I was continuing on that. And um, the new book is decidedly different from where that one was. I imagine that you had already done a shit ton of research for that first version in the book. How much more did you have to do for this new version for what we are actually reading now? Well, I, you know, you're right. I had watched all those movies initially, but you know, we're talking now, that's literally 20 years ago at this point. So I had to go, I watched them all again. And I, you know, I had some revelations. I I recall not liking three o'clock high when I saw it in 1987. And I just kind of lazily 
wrote my review based on that memory. And then as I saw how beloved that film has become online, I reassessed, you know, I said, I have to go back and watch it. And that, that was the moment where I said, okay, I actually do have to watch all these things again. Which is only, what, 350-some movies? 300-plus. Yeah, I haven't actually tallied them up. Heavy Metal Movies had 850, and uh, there were over a 1,000 reviews in that book. So this was relatively easygoing. It's a walk in the park. Yeah. (laughs) What are your cutoff points? When do teen movies begin, and when do they end as far as this book goes? Well, I, I wanted it to be a cultural snapshot of the 20 years between American Graffiti in 1973 and Dazed and Confused in 1993. I think the very first teen sex comedy, as we would come to understand them in the Porky's era, is a Canadian film from 1969 called The First Time, which is about three of the dorkiest dorks you could imagine in Niagara Falls, New York, who, who hear there's um, – an opportunity in Niagara Falls, Canada, where you could pay for sex and they can lose their virginities. There's a lot of like very groovy psychedelic bubblegum music. They ride, they cross the Rainbow Bridge to Canada. They do not find a brothel, but one of them does find Jacqueline Bissett. And uh, it's it's not a great film, but it's fascinating. And and it's really it's what's weird is that it's 1969, but it's sort of the Brady Bunch 1969. These kids are really dorky. They're like. 10-year-olds on a sitcom. They're not like what we imagine high school students in 1969 to have been. That's an interesting film, and I think that's really the first one. The, the roots go back to most directly to the beach party movies with Frankie and Annette and you know, Kids Gone Wild without parents, anti-authority, surrealistic slapstick. But I, I think American Graffiti is sort of the I guess that's the big bang moment of the movies that would, you know, what would turn into Porky's and Fast Times at Ridgemont High and an Animal House before those two. So, talking about Animal House and uh, American Graffiti, I mean, these movies are coming out in the seventies, but they are so influenced by the nineteen fifties, and it seems to be this kind of, hey, this is our youth, this is our time, and this weird nostalgia for 20 years before, is that just coming from the people that are making the film, or why do you think that that is? Yeah, no, that's exactly what it was. And it's wild to think that, you know, uh, American Graffiti came out in 1973. The famous tagline is, where were you in 62? That's only 11 years ago. So 11 years ago from now was 2008. That doesn't seem like another era of human history, you know? But the difference culturally and in society between 73 and 62 is tremendous. Uh, it was that generation of, of baby boomers saying, okay, now it's our turn to tell our stories. And Animal House is also set in 1962. And what's symbolic about that is I think, you know, 63 is when Kennedy was killed. The Beatles then came over to America. And that begins the 60s proper, as we understand it. 62 is very firmly rooted in culturally what we think of as the 50s, the Eisenhower era. Right, yeah, and then you've got things like Lemon Popsicle, or it it just seems like that is such a a touchstone for a lot of these movies. And then when it comes to things that are solidly set in the 70s, I gotta ask how much of things like, you know, Vietnam, how does that play over, does it hover over some of these films? The only one that I can think of that it really hovers over is a horrible film called Getting Wasted from uh, 1970, 1980. 
and Stephen First from Animal House is in that, and that's set in the late sixties, and it's about a kid who is screwing up at school, and his parents uh, threaten him that he's going to have to join the army, so he goes to a military academy, and it's a really mirthless film, but no, there's not a lot of acknowledgement of the scary sixties happening in these movies. And, you know, I guess their their escapism, their adolescent wish fulfillment and fantasy played out on screen. So why would it be? One movie that I don't know if I would necessarily call this a teen sex comedy, but something like Over the Edge, where it's just that, you know, you're taking that whole idea of us versus the teachers versus the community versus the parents to an extreme level. And I have to ask, as far as other, the more comedic films, is that pretty much like the three things that people are rebelling against? Are those civilians typically? The villain is, yes, it's your teacher, the bully, uh, the stuck-up girl is a big one, and the cops a lot of times. They're on the run from the local bumbling cops. I mean, Over the Edge is a, is a fascinating film, of course. And when I was a kid in the 70s, that's what teenagers seemed like to me. They were terrifying. They were not like the guys on Happy Days, uh, let alone, you know, or American Graffiti, for that matter. But the... Uh, you know, teenagers when I was a kid were like sniffing glue and listening to Led Zeppelin, and uh, they were really scary. Nineteen <laughs> seventies Brooklyn, New York. Uh, by the time I became a teenager, we were uh, much much nerdier than they were and goofier. Were there heavier films, or or are you sticking more towards the lighter kind of ideas for this? Yeah, no, this book is about comedies, and and sort of the overall premise of, of what qualifies a movie to be in the book was the largely it's based on marketing to me every movie in this book is sold on the idea it's made about teenagers for a teenage audience and it's sold on the idea hey kids there's a party up on the screen you're invited all you have to do is buy a ticket or bring the video box up to the counter and rent it there are uh heavy moments um Foxes is a heavy film uh, with Joey Foster, the Adrian Lyon film, and Sheree Curry. Little Darlings, which is a tremendously interesting film, has some depth and has has some some legit brokenheartedness in it. And then you know, and then you can veer off into Insanity Land with The Last American Virgin, which is a remake of Lemon Popsicle, which you mentioned. And I want to say, as an aside, all those fifties nostalgia movies that are in this book that happened all happened as a result of American graffiti being a tremendous blockbuster. I think in its day, it made the equivalent of like $770 million at the box office worldwide. So all those, you know, the cheapy B movie sexploitation guys were just like, let's just, uh, you know, put them in pool skirts and skirts and grease their hair back. And the, the kids will go wild. And they did tough turf ended up in there um, with the, James Spader sort of crime movie he's fighting a teenage gang uh that was just sort of a personal preference of publisher uh ian christie it's one of his he really loves that film and he just asked me to put it in but there are a lot of like teenage gang films that came out at the time everything from the outsiders up to young warriors like weird things like that and the 315 the moment of truth is a good one with adam baldwin um they're not in this book this book again this is about comedies this is about good times and then you know it does smudge a little bit because it's like how does something like say anything work into that because that's not promised to be a party but it's it's certainly one of the touchstones of the genre 
Right, right. And then even thinking of like the uh, abortion scene in uh, Last American Virgin or the or the abortion scene in uh, Fast Times, yeah. Fast Times, yeah, which uh, you know, you we've got I should mention you've got uh different writers. We've got uh a couple favorites here from the projection booth, Kat Ellinger and Sam uh Deegan writing some pieces for you as well. Yeah, and they were just uh, tremendous. I mean, they were, I was knocked for a loop by their contributions. I can't believe what they brought to it. In fall of 2017, we were I was putting Teen Movie Hell, not to bed quite, but I was, I was ready to begin the serious edits with the publisher. And fall of 2017 was when the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, and the Me Too movement exploded. And like, you know, a lot of men that I have talked to, uh, it rattled me to the core. For, and my first thought, selfishly, was like, oh, no, I can't put out this book. I can't put out this You know, I am a 50-year-old married man who is celebrating books, uh, these films that are all about voyeurism, tricking girls into sex, and revenge porn. I will be shot to pieces the day it, oh, it, it lands. So that was my first thought. Then I had you know, a lot of deep soul searching. This is what I've talked to other men about. Like, you know, what, why, where have I erred in my life? What could I have done better? How can I make things better? And then there was the final, like, well, maybe I shouldn't be celebrating these movies. Maybe they really were a crime against humanity. And in the midst of all this, as these many think pieces were coming out, there was the two titles that kept getting mentioned were 16 candles and revenge of the nerds. And I saw, Oh God damn it. Those are the Disney films of this genre. If I go out there with like King Frat and Screwballs, I mean, what's going to happen? So I actually got so stressed out about it, I vomited. It's the first time I ever stress puked in my life. And I called Ian and begged him. I just said, dude, you know, we, we got to kill the book. I'll return my advance and I'm sorry. And he said, I will not kill the book but I will put it in a deep freeze and we can revisit it whenever you want. So not long after that, because that was in the fall. So Thanksgiving morning, weirdly, I just had this lightning bolt thought show up in my head from, I don't know, the goddess or whoever that said like, Hey schmuck, you know, all these brilliant women that write about film. Why don't you invite them? Why don't you hire them to contribute chapters to the book? And that's what I did. And it's like my dream team. It's like Kayla Janice, Heather Drain, Kat, Sam, Katie Wright from the AV Club, Wendy McClure, who wrote the essay about uh, the Fast Times abortion scene. I'm just floored by what they brought to it. And they made it a much better book as a result. This would be a far lesser product had I not had that dark uh, couple of weeks of the soul there. Yeah, Kat's piece was really striking to me in the way that she directly took on some of those quote unquote think pieces that were floating around. I really appreciate how she took that idea of this being this sexist book and just ripped it off of the, the brink, you know, just took it safely back and was just like, no, there's a time and a place for these movies. You can't look at everything through a 2019, 2018 lens. You have to put yourself in the times that these were being made. It means a lot more coming from a woman who is of age to have remembered these films than it would from me, who was the very guy with the tent in his pants that was going to see these movies. (laughs) Saying, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool. I'm cool. 
So that would that meant a lot, and I mean it's just brilliant. Or the the, the Ellinger Code um, is the forward to the book that she wrote, and it's just brilliant. Yeah, all of those essays. The Wendy McClure was particularly striking. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. She's a personal friend here in Chicago. Of all of the movies, and this is probably an unfair question, but of all of the films that you cover, what are some of your favorites? Whenever people ask me what the be- what the best movie is or my favorite movie. I say the best movie I've ever seen is 2001 A Space Odyssey. My favorite movie of all time is Forbidden Zone, the 1980 musical by Richard Elfman. So there's a difference to me. So I'll tell you, the and the best movies in the book are American Graffiti and Risky Business. And they're two movies I love. American Graffiti in particular, I believe, is a work of genius. Animal House is a perfect film. Fast Times at Ridgemont High may not have started life as a perfect film, but it has become a perfect film over time. So those, I would say, are the four best movies in the book. Now, my favorites, where my heart belongs, are in the criminally insane films like King Frat that I mentioned, Screwballs, Zapped, The Party Animal, Joysticks, the completely off-the-wall, surrealistic, cartoonish, decadent, berserk explosions of excess. Those are the movies I love the most. Party Animal is a particular favorite around here. I had a friend of mine in, uh, it was late high school, early college, and that was his favorite film. So watching that on VHS was quite an experience. Richard Christie of the Howard Stern Show um, has uh, told me many times that that is his favorite film of all time. And then, yeah, we covered uh, Joysticks around here just a couple years ago, and that fucking song. Oh, my God. Everything oh, about that movie is so great, but that theme song. Totally awesome video games by Legion. The name of the band is Legion, which is such a heavy name. <laughs> you must have run across a lot of good songs when it came to putting this together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, discovered a lot. And that's and that's also in the back of the book. I have the Teen Music Hill mixtape. I'll tell you, my fi- the, the one I think is the best is uh, sp- uh, not Spring Break, Up the Creek by Cheap Trick. They also do Spring Break, which is a good song. But Up the Creek is one of the great Cheap Trick songs, which makes it one of the great rock songs, which makes it the greatest teen sex comedy theme song. But the one that really I've loved, and i got to say I've loved it from the time I heard it on the commercial when I was 13, is Trying to Kill a Saturday Night by uh, Keen which is the song that plays under the opening titles of Zapped. Just amazing, great power pop. They were a failed teen idol duo of the 70s who sort of reinvented themselves as a power pop duo in the post-Nack era of the early 80s. Uh, flopped here in America, but were huge in Japan. We talked about the party animal, and if memory serves, there's uh, some science fiction to that. Also, Zapped, a little sci-fi. How many of these movies are mixing genres? Uh, well, yeah, that sci-fi is a big one. There's some, some, some seem to be robots and things in the. Well, you got weird science, of course, and uh, I think you covered my science project in there. The real genius, which is, yeah, I guess, you know, has sci-fi elements, but not really. Um, what's the cave girl? Oh, yeah, travels back to the <laughs> the Stone Age, the the high the high school nerd with the Indiana Jones fetish. That's a big one. I didn't get so much into the teen horror stuff um, because I did a bit, but it's like so. So that I made a call. So student bodies, which I think is a tremendous film, that made it because it's so rooted in high school movie cliches. Whereas something like Night of the Creeps, I think of as a horror film first with comedic elements. 
So that was sort of a splitting hairs decision that I had to make. Cheerleader camp made it for the cheerleader stuff. Wacko. But but not Saturday the fourteenth because there's there's not enough teenage stuff in it. So there's a there's a lot of blending of genres. Vamp is in the book with Chris Makepeace and Grace Jones as a teen sex comedy about a vampire. Once bitten with Jim Carrey, that that which much funnier than I than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I, I saw it at the time, I thought it was okay, but I really laughed watching it this time. I just one thing to say to you: Horset bookends. That I say sometimes, Malvert P. Red. You talked about Once Bitten and also Three O'Clock High. Were there other films that rewatching them now? You're just like, oh yeah, I, I actually like this. Or the converse? Did you go, what the fuck was I thinking? Oh, that's interesting. You know, not that's interesting because I thought there'd be a lot more of the latter. Say anything. I was sort of dreading having to watch again, and because I kind of thought it was, I don't know, sappy when I saw it, or I, and everything that's been attached to it since then. I remember like almost blowing a, a brain gasket when, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, there was some improv group in New York that was walking around in trench coats and boom boxes playing, like holding them up and playing the Peter Gabriel song. And I was just, you know, despising humanity <laughs> more than usual for a second when I saw it. So, um, I watched it again and it's really a very good film. Um, just a, a great, Teenage romance, very interesting characters. Um, John Mahoney as uh, Ioni Sky's father has a really odd, credible side plot where he runs a nursing home and gets busted for embezzling funds. And I was like, that's that's a interesting detail to work into what could otherwise have just been a goofy. Uh, hey, you know, I'm in love with this girl movie. So that was that was one that was pl- a pleasant surprise, but nothing that I liked that I think was less than when I watched it again, which was another very decent surprise. Speaking of movies that I liked at one point, now I completely hate, you used to really like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but now I just cannot stand that smug a-hole. Yeah, no, that was the reaction I had at the time. Um, You know, I I saw it by myself in the middle of the day um, in, in Manhattan, and I just was... And they have to understand. So I'm 17 years old. I had just graduated from college. So I'm, I'm a punk rocker. I'm into horror movies. I'm listening to the butthole surfers and the circle jerks. I'm watching almost exclusively, uh, you know, Italian cannibal films and Nazi exploitation. And I, I worship Sam Kinison and Howard Stern. So I'm sitting there and I, I watching Ferris Bueller. I was like, Oh, this is genuinely what it feels like to be offended. I now know what it's like to be offended by something. And I was in a rage. I remember like my popcorn shaking in my hand from the word go. And, you know, I, I write at length in the book about that and my analysis of it. You know, for decades, I was the one guy who hated Ferris Bueller. It was everybody's favorite movie. And everybody thought he was, you know, a righteous dude, as Edie McClurg says. But now, within the past couple of years, the rest of society seems to have caught up with me, and I'm annoyed by that. You mentioned uh, Say Anything, and I don't think enough credit can be given to John Cusack. Just like, to me, he's kind of the king of a lot of these teen comedies. I mean, the the trilogy, to me, of The Sure Thing, Better Off Dead, and One Crazy Summer, it doesn't get any better than that for me. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, that was another one, like... One Crazy Summer, I remember liking. Watching it again, I was like, I think this is better than Better Off Dead. 
I was stunned by how great it is. It is crazy good. And he made so many of them. And I read various points. I mean, I'd like to interview him at, at some time. But, you know, I read that he was annoyed by Better Off Dead. He was embarrassed by it. He was contractually obligated to make One Crazy Summer. But I don't know if that's true. Certainly, it does not come across in the films. And, I mean, he's good in all those. He's great in all those movies. He's perfect. I mean, he's perfect. Let's say that. Yeah. I like him in class. I like him in – anytime he turns up, he's terrific. People forget that he's, you know, he's even in 16 Candles, and it's just – Yeah. 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 yeah 16 Candles, you know, talking uh, about the, the earlier point as far as this being kind of the, the Disney version of these teen sex comedies, it's still probably one that people go to immediately in their heads. Yeah, and that, and that's why because it is the Disney version, and yet it's also the one that come one of the two that come up. You know, the New York Post, which is like my beloved insane right wing rag from New York, uh, ran an article time to time to ban this so called classic film. Jesus, <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it's interesting. I, I say that that was so. John Hughes essentially gentrified the genre. That's that's really what he did. It was a crazy, wild, fun house, and then it was Disneyland. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, going to you – know, most people, the masses, let's say, will prefer to go to Disneyland than to a scary, you know, back alley carnival. I'm not one of them. Uh, you know, there's a place for Disneyland. I've had good times there. And uh, I think 16 Candles is really funny, but it did – sort of wreck everything. <laughs> and it was also, you know, a PG-13 film. Oh, no, was that? I can't. No, it is PG-13. You know, PG-13 also kind of ruined everything. And like everything else. When producers knew they could expand their potential ticket sales with the PG-13, they softened everything down to get that PG-13 rating. Well, that's the thing is I prefer the more subversive things. You know, some of these movies that we've talked about already, some of the things like, you know, Hamburger, the motion picture or stewardess school. I mean, there are just so many, you know, sorority babes at the slime ball bull rama. Yeah. In the book. Yes. Let's talk about things that are not so gentrified and that, you know, are, are pretty cutting edge. And yeah, yeah, they got boobs in them and stuff, but sometimes there's a message there and sometimes they're just fun for fun's sake. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to the famous tagline of Caddyshack. It's the slobs against the snobs. And my favorite movies, which is everything, and Hamburger is, I meant to put that in with, you know, Joysticks and Zap. That's right there in my top five most beloved. And that is clearly saying these are the heroes, the slobs. And what John Hughes did with 16 Candles is say, no, no, no. Here's the heroes, the snobs, and here's why they're your heroes. And I feel like Everybody got on board that train and switched sides. He was a culture warrior for the bad guys. Yeah, I think Molly Ringwald in any other film, like I'm thinking of her, especially in like Pretty in Pink or The Breakfast Club, she's that stuck up girl that you were talking about earlier. And it's interesting because I, I do, I like Pretty in Pink quite a bit. And the reason is because um, it is about an outsider. And it's believable, and the ending is particularly believable. And spoiler alert, everybody. So this this odd art school bound girl who makes her own clothes is uh, it, it, Molly Ringwald from the wrong side of the tracks with an alcoholic father, played by Aradine Stanton. 
Her best friend is Ducky, who's this very flamboyant, goofy kid who many people believe would be gay in a couple of years, or maybe he would. But he's completely in love with her. He's devoted to her. She's not interested in him. She's interested in Andrew McCarthy as the rich, preppy kid that asks her out. So the whole movie goes on, and you kind of are set up to think, oh, she's just going to go with Ducky because that's right, because they're both oddballs, and we'll go from there. But... At the end, she at the prom, she chooses to go with the rich preppy guy. And to me, that's a very satisfying and happy ending and believable. And they originally, the original ending was different. It was she takes, she goes with Ducky, as written by John Hughes. They tested that version for a teenage audience or for several. Repeatedly, the kids said, we love the movie. We hate the end. We don't buy it. We think she'd want to have this experience with this guy. I think that's, you know, I think it's organic and it feels right. And, and you know, again, they're not getting married. They're graduating high school. They're going to have a summer romance. So Hughes was so annoyed by that, he wrote some kind of wonderful, which is really just a gender-flipped remake in which the uh, blue-collar guy goes with the artsy girl who seems very, very openly lesbian at that point, but that's speculation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I was really glad to see Pandemonium in your book. Oh, yes. That was the other one I was trying to remember, yeah. It does skirt that edge of horror, but it is just ridiculous. I mean, it spoofs – and to me, again, it's it's a teen movie first. You know, it spoofs Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald musicals. I mean, it's it's all over the place. Yeah, it seems like somebody just stuck that script in a blender and came up with something wonderful. So how has the book been received? Are you getting a lot of notice from it? Yeah, I mean, so far, everybody's been happy uh, that's gotten it. You know, knock uh, whatever this material is here. You know, it seems to be be doing well. It uh, It's interesting because heavy metal movies, when it came out, got a lot of mainstream attention. I was in Entertainment Weekly, like, you know, newspapers around the country and stuff. And I've not gotten that with Team Movie Hell. I've not gotten interviewed by, you know, Rolling Stone or anything. And I don't know why. I, I think perhaps it's a combination of the topic. Mainstream places don't cover medium-sized publishers' books anymore about obscure film genres. But it, it's, I'm a little baffled by that. But um, I've not heard from anybody that really disliked the book so far. I will eventually, I'm sure. But. I think, you know, Heavy Metal Movies was pretty well received. I didn't really notice any bad reviews on that, um, except for recently, somebody, there was a press release uh, that somebody retweeted that said, you know, here comes Teen Movie Hell, and some guy on Twitter wrote, oh, from the guy who didn't include Transformers the movie in Heavy Metal Movies? No thanks. And I was like, oh, that's the greatest review I've ever gotten in my life. <laughs> Well, yeah, I wonder if people are afraid of the subject matter these days. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, it's probably. I mean, that would be my my guess. Yeah, but there are so many good movies in here, and so many of them. Some there are a lot of clunkers, but there are so many that are just wonderful. You know, it comes back to so heavy metal movies is all about like you know mutilation, Satan worship, fire, death. The mainstream really embraced that, and. As a kid, I always hated, like, when people would say, it would just, it annoyed me. I mean, I basically agreed, but it annoyed me when people would say, oh, you can show people getting chopped up, killed, you know, with their heads cut off, but don't show any naked bodies, don't show a boob. And we have moved so much deeper into that mindset in 2019. I'm astonished by it. 
And I have to say, yeah, it, it is a bizarre double standard that exists now. The lengths that some of these movies would go to to use boobs was just amazing. <laughs> yes. I mean, of course, the uh, pictures at the bottom of the pies, you know, and uh, Revenge of the Nerds, just so many great moments. Now, Revenge of the Nerds is interesting because that was one that really does bear reassessment. And that was another one, as I said, not just the Disney film, but that was always pointed to as the champion of the underdogs film of the era. And what you see now, like watching it now, the nerds install cameras in the stuck-up girl sorority. (laughs) They take photographs of the most stuck-up girl, put the photographs on the bottom of a cream pie plate so that when people eat them, they get to see her naked. And then later in the movie, famously, uh, Lewis, the lead nerd played by Robert Carradine, dresses up as Darth Vader to make uh, the head cheerleader think he is her boyfriend, the big jock. They have sex. So he deceives her into sex, and she has the revelation, and it's like the greatest experience of her life. She has the revelation. Nerds are great at sex because that's all they think about, whereas jocks are lousy at it because all they think about is sports. And as an aside, that really happened in my life. I lost my virginity to a cheerleader who wanted to test that theory. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's the truth. And I don't know if I, if I, I don't know if I proved it right or wrong. So, yeah, I guess when I think about uh, people that don't necessarily that, that they're kind of being tricked and stuff, that whole drugged up girlfriend from Sixteen Candles comes to mind too. That was the other one. Yes, the hunky guy that Molly Ringwald is in love with just gives. Anthony Michael Hall, the nerd, gives her his passed out girlfriend and says, do what you want with her. Um, I've watched it a bunch of times. I think they just pass out and sleep. They wake up and she thinks they had the best sex of their life, of her life, and she's in love with him and stuff. But it's still unnerving that it was that common, um, that 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 was not, that didn't stand out as something wrong or you know, even now, it's it's brutal to think about that. You do what you want with my passed out girlfriend. So it, you know, it's right to reevaluate those moments. A lot of the laughter at this stuff is because we know it's wrong. So the uh, Getty Wantanabe as uh, Long Duck Don also comes under um, constant criticism for being the ultimate, you know, embodiment of racist stereotypes about Asian characters. Every time he shows up on screen, a gong sounds. He talks in broken English. He's all horny. And to me, the joke is how wrong and insensitive and that we know that that's wrong. But still, that doesn't mean that that didn't hurt people's feelings. And I, I can acknowledge that. Was there much casual racism in the rest of the movies that you talked oh, about? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah, the party animal is one of the best. And I don't know that that's – oh, God, yes, with the old Uncle Remus guy that's telling the story is one of the talking heads in the mock documentary, yes. But that's the thing. Like Forbidden Zone, my favorite movie of all time, you use these stereotypes and uh, you use you know these culturally unacceptable icons to make fun of them, to hold up a mirror and say, isn't this ridiculous that this exists? Again, I can say that as a, you know, a, a white man married to a woman, um, that I can say that I was never personally frightened as a result of these things. And, and I can be sympathetic to those who were. So, Mike, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Uh, 
I want to do a podcast. Obviously, I have to get a better microphone. Um, a couple of ideas. I don't want to announce anything because I announced heavy metal movies in 2015, which was way too early. So um, I want to play this pretty close to my Hawaiian shirt at this point. Uh, I'm inspired by Cat Ellinger, who wrote the um, All the Colors of Sergio Martino book. Didn't tell anybody and until it was out. I said, look, surprise, you can order my book now. That's it. I mean, I'm going to be touring the country this summer promoting uh, Teen Movie Hell with a bunch of screenings. So I will be uh, – it starts – I believe it's June 20th at the Music Box in Chicago. Katie Reif and I will be presenting Hot Dog the Movie as an, a new, never-before-seen uncut version as part of the Cinepocalypse Festival. Uh, I will be in Philadelphia at Philomoca to show Valley Girl on July 27th. Austin at the Alamo Draft House with Zach Carlson and Brian Connolly of Destroy All Movies, who inspired heavy metal movies, to show The Last American Virgin. August 10th in Boston, showing Meatballs. Back at the Alamo, August 18th for another Last American Virgin. And August 20th, switching hats, taking off the Hawaiian shirt and putting on the battle vest to heavy metal movies author. I will be at the Alamo Yonkers to show The Burning with Michael Gingold. Well, where's the best place to keep up with you and all your screenings and all your books and all that kind of stuff? Facebook, Instagram. Mike, it's uh, slash McBeardo on Facebook, uh, slash Teen Movie Hell on Facebook. Well, Mike McBeardo McPadden, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This was great, Mike. <laughs> 